life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to Life After That. everyone and welcome to another episode of Life After That. Today we have Amanda Block from Alberta, Canada. She's going to share with us a little bit about her life with her husband Dale just before diagnosis with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis back in 2017. Dale was 56 years old and he passed away in 2020 at age 60. So Amanda, thank you for joining us today. And we're just so happy that you're willing to share your story with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jan. It's really an honor to be here. You're most welcome. Um, Amanda, can you just share with us a little bit about your lives before ALS invaded and then kind of lead us into what led to getting a diagnosis and what happened after that? Sure. We, uh, we were a pretty normal family, I guess. Uh, um, my husband and I and three sons, and one of them was married at the time, uh, that he started noticing little things that he, he didn't tell me much about. He just started dealing with them himself. Things like um, couldn't do up the buttons on his dress shirt and he couldn't clip his fingernails anymore. He started writing at work with his left hand. And um, I, there were just things that I didn't know about uh, that were bothering him that he told me more about uh, after he was diagnosed. I knew that something was wrong when we went on holiday and we were sitting around the pool and I saw his legs start to tremble. The muscles were shaking um, a little bit like some kind of an alien production going on. And uh, I guess those are called fasciculations I have learned since then. And his leg was just shaking with him. So I actually took a video of it with my phone because I thought it was so unusual and kind of interesting. And um, that, was, that was one of the, one of the precursors to his diagnosis. So he did see a doctor. Um, he was encouraged to drink more water, exercise more, exercise less, sleep more, all of the things, x-rays, um, blood tests. And finally, he had a chance to see a neurologist and he was given an EMG. And that was how he was diagnosed in June of 2017, June 1st. And he chose that day not to go back to work. So on June 2nd, he did not go back to work. And we uh, just decided that we would make the most of every single day that we had. Um, We chose to use gratitude as a theme for our lives and just make the most of every moment. I mean, it was definitely excruciating to tell our three sons and our daughter-in-law, and then eventually our Uh, the gal that was to be our future daughter-in-law about the diagnosis and understandably traumatic for everybody to receive that news and then to pass that news on to other family members as well. Um, I think most people already understood what ALS was. Uh, We we got a lot of education very quickly as all of us do when we are diagnosed with ALS. Dale's ALS was sporadic 
So it was um, not familiar, familial, it was not in his genes and it was limb onset. So it started in his legs. He, he felt that it was very difficult to go upstairs. He started feeling like his limbs were very heavy. Um, and it just basically worked its way up his body. And, and he was given a diagnosis of two to five years as is generally given. And he lived for three and a half. So smack dab in the middle of two to five years. So um, what did you find um, after the diagnosis? What did you find to be the most challenging thing about daily life that you and Dale faced in your home? And did you have to make a lot of changes? Did he lose the ability to walk quickly or not? What was the situation with all of that? Well, other than obviously the emotional challenges of dealing with the disease and knowing what the outcome was going to be, even as positive as you can be, you, you know what this means. But yes, practically, I mean, it changed every week the physical needs. Uh, we live in Alberta, Canada, and as such, we are blessed with an amazing healthcare system and an amazing ALS clinic where we were immediately assigned a whole team of medical professionals who were fantastic. We were also uh, connected to the Alberta ALS Society who are wonderful for support, support groups and information and equipment. So we used them a lot. We saved tens of thousands of dollars because our local ALS society has a lending library of equipment. So when Dale needed a cane, uh, they had a cane that we could borrow. When he needed a walker, they had a walker and it changed very quickly. So we learned very quickly that we needed to have the next piece of equipment that we were going to need available before we needed it. Because all of a sudden you need a lift to go up the stairs. All of a sudden you need a Hoyer lift and slings. All of a sudden you're going to need um, a trilogy machine for ventilation. Um, suddenly you might need a G-tube because you can't swallow. You might need a cough assist machine. So everything that uh, he needed was available to us either through the ALS Society or through the medical clinic. And um, so I'm very thankful for that. So it's a, a lot of organization, a lot of specialists in and out of our home and a lot of just being ready. For the next stage as as we were walking the path were you the uh, sole caregiver or did you have help to come in and help you day to day or was it up to you to help with everything from bathing and dressing and all of that so at the beginning i did all of the caregiving uh, but we uh, are able in alberta to hire caregivers for certain amounts of time uh, where we have a, an assessment and then we're given so many hours and the funding to hire for so many hours. There are different ways you can do it, but we chose to hire privately. So we were able to interview a couple of really fantastic people who came alongside of us and journeyed with us for most of the ALS journey, especially the last two years. Uh, it was definitely exhausting. I mean, they're there for so many hours a day, but it's a 24 seven job towards the end. And so I did find that um, I was tired. I was up every two hours at night just to turn him over to make him comfortable. You're just always watching that batteries are charged and 
any kind of um, private personal care is very hands-on and, you know, feeding, breathing, everything. Definitely very, very trying. What was the hardest thing you think for him um, when he got the diagnosis? I mean, I know my husband was personally just very positive minded, really the entire time, but there were certain things that were just really difficult for him to accept and to deal with. What, what did you um, witness that to be for your husband and then also for yourself? Those are very good questions. Definitely. He was very much like your husband. He was very, very positive and he was a leader in most every situation that he was in, including at work. And so he basically took on directorship of the situation and managed it as a a manager would and uh, made great decisions. He was very positive. He humbled himself because you can't be um, a patient with ALS without humbling yourself because the, the needs are so great. Right. So he did that very, very well. Um, he, he chose to be grateful. He chose to make the best out of every day. And a lot of that had to do with traveling for us. So we actually went all over the world with the power chair and all the equipment. And that was definitely very, very challenging for the team of us that took him, but uh, he was determined. So that's what we did. And I have no regrets because we did everything that we could possibly do to make time as best as it could be. That sounds so, like a real blessing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I am very, very thankful for the memories that I have. And I, I really was very aware that I wanted to have good memories. And I wanted to know that I had done the best that I could do, and that I didn't have any regrets. So even though I wasn't a perfect person, I chose every day to be very patient and very kind and just take care of all of his needs so that I would be able to say to myself, you did the best that you could do. That was definitely a goal for me. And who took care of Amanda? Did someone make sure that you were okay? Uh, Because I I know I went three and a half years really with no respite care and that was really difficult. So, I mean, were you taking care of yourself or was someone else making sure that you did? Yes, I, I did when I needed to. I mean, I'm sure we all, you know, there's more that all of us could do. When you're involved with ALS, you, you don't really get much of a break. But I have amazing family and friends. And like I said, some of the caregiving that we, we were able to have. And I truly felt very loved. I truly felt very supportive. We, um, we are husband and wife married to husband and wife. So we're sisters married to brothers. Oh, wow. And yeah, so that is a relationship that um, really held us together. Um, The the amount of work that was was done that was gifted to us to make it possible really for us to survive the last couple of years. There were other siblings and other family and some really great friends as well. So I do feel very much like In the journey of ALS, it's easy to lose friends. People don't understand and they don't know what to say and they don't know what to do. And my friends and family were willing to say that and to be there for me. Um, 
and I I will I, I can never be grateful enough for the amount of support that they gave me and continue to give me. I think it's so important to, to remember that grief never goes away. And we, we have been traumatized in a way. I, I like to think of it as post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic stress, but in that post-traumatic growth process, you need people around you. And I truly do have those people around me. They continue to be there for me two years out. And I couldn't be more thankful for that. That's great. Cause I hear actually the opposite for a great many people that I talk to. Tell me about Dale before ALS though. What was his occupation? What were his, um, what were his passions? What did he love to do for fun? Did he, did he, did he have health issues before ALS? No, no, he was a healthy guy, um, loved life. He had a number of different careers, but the career that he was in when he was diagnosed was a manager of child and family services in our region. And he um, took care of some, some very trying situations and he managed a couple of different offices, a few different staffs and did a great job of it. Uh, not biased at all when I say that. <laughs> um, yeah, so he he grabbed life and he did life all the way through. He loved he loved uh, football. He loved traveling. I mean, he loved his kids more than anything. And uh, yeah, he he valued life and he valued his faith and and he loved people in his own way. How old uh, were your children at diagnosis? Were they already already grown and out of the home? They were all in their 20s okay. at the time. Yeah. That's still young to lose their dad, though. It is. It's too young. It's too young. He, he had a very good relationship with them. There were a lot of laughs in our home. Um, one of my favorite memories is just listening to them all hysterically laughing together, which is pretty much what happened every time they got together. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you wish that they still had the opportunity to learn about life from him in the new stages that, that they're in now. Right. We, have, we have two young grandchildren that he never got to meet. And, you know, those, those are hard things for everybody. Those are, you know, celebrations that you grieve, I guess, is a way of saying it. Yeah, I wish mine was still alive to meet our first grandchild and then the one that's due in a couple of months uh, he would love them and so yeah I understand yeah. that completely um, did your husband uh, keep his voice the whole time or did he ever lose his voice that was something that was uh, kind of cool I I didn't have a lot of uh, expectation when it came to ALS I knew what it meant as soon as he was diagnosed I was very familiar with with diagnosis. And the one thing that was just made very clear to me, and I just knew it in my heart, and I said it to him very soon after he was diagnosed, I said, you will not lose your voice. It was just like a word I was given. And I just knew that he was not ever going to lose his voice. And he didn't. So he cool. lost everything else, everything else, but not his voice. So he was, which was important. You know, I can't imagine losing your voice to start with when you are trying to communicate a need that you can't meet for yourself, but also so much of his 
personality and his managerial approach to things. He needed to be able to talk <laughs> uh, right up till the very, very last day. Uh, he was still trying to plan where we were all going to go for Christmas that year. Uh, he was he was pretty determined. And yeah, I'm so thankful that that he kept his voice through all of that. It was a trying time at the end. I mean, it was COVID and we just chose to live regardless of COVID um, and decide not to change our approach to life a whole lot, but became challenging for me for funeral and burial and visitation, all those kinds of things. I, I really felt like I needed the support of the people around me. So it was very hard for me that I wasn't allowed to have that. Um, on the other hand, we were able to broadcast his, or stream, I guess, his memorial service, his graduation service, as we like to call it. And because of that, more people were able to attend than if we'd had it in person. Uh, there were, it's over, had over a hundred or over a thousand views. Wow. At this point. And I know some people watched it as families and as couples. So I know a lot more people got to be present for that than would have been able to be if, if we hadn't had to stream it. So there's that, I guess. Well, I think your, um, your journey is probably one of the most positive ones that I've ever heard. Uh, my husband kept ours positive, but at the same time, he did lose his voice early on. He lost the ability to walk early on. Um, and it was really tough. And we did, we didn't get to travel much. Um, someone did give us a van and I was able to take him a couple hours South to the Gulf of Mexico a couple of times. And that was amazing. Yeah. And um, so you have to make, it's like you said, you got to make the best of what you have. And, but it's really hard. It's even harder for some people, I guess, but I think it's important for people to hear your story too. You have such a great outlook and you talked about, you traveled all over the world. So just, can you share maybe, what was your favorite trip or what was the most difficult trip as well, just for that time period? Oh, my goodness. I cannot pick a favorite and I cannot pick a most difficult because they were all fantastic and they were all excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> we the first one I took alone with we traveled a lot before ALS. It's something that we chose to do rather than wait for retirement and then not be able to do it, which is a good thing yeah. that we did. Um, so the first trip I had taken alone with him. But after that, we took a caregiver or family members along to help because there is absolutely no way we could have done it we had a lot of equipment and there was a lot of planning as you know just for transportation um, and you know any any place that you needed to be how is it going to work and so it was just fantastic we were able to go around the states um, we were able to go to Roatan which became a, a favorite island for us to visit we went to Singapore, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. Um, we just traveled. And yeah, we, we put the work in to make it special for him. Yeah. And he, he was determined to make the best of his time. And so he put up with a lot. But like he said, well, I get to just make the plans and everybody else gets to do the work. So, <laughs> And that's the truth, because like you said, it's it's a lot of work to take an ALS patient 
five feet from the house, let alone all yep. over the world. I, I can't yeah. imagine uh, doing that. Uh, I, I arranged uh, times to take him to like Christmas concerts or, you know, make a trip to the ALS clinic up in Nashville and then go listen to music down on Broadway there. And, you know, it was exhausting. And yeah. uh, if I didn't have my daughter, it was usually just me. Sometimes his twin brother, uh, if we were doing something local, uh, he had a sister that lived nearby that would help with some things, but it was, you know, it's all hands on deck. And mm -hmm. like you, you got to remember, is everything charged? Do I have all the plugs? Do I have the battery back up? Do I have a suction? Do I have this? Do I have that? And um, that's something else that a lot of people don't realize. It's not that they can't move parts of their bodies. They still feel and they still have bodily functions. And as caregivers, we're having to take care of all of that and try that's to right. to have forethought about what might happen. Um it, it is exhausting. And, you know, if you're like me, you didn't know how tired you were till after everything. Absolutely. I had no idea what I had been going through until I had a chance to stop and just take a breath. And yeah, I mean, it's months and months of physical recovery yeah. besides anywhere, anything to do with the emotional recovery at all. And that's where the name of this podcast comes from is life after that. What was that? I mean, yes, and it I struck me right as soon as as soon as you were asking about this podcast and talking about it with people, I'm like, you couldn't have a better title because it's like, what was that exactly? Because in a sense, uh, I mean, it's you're left in shock. I mean, I still feel like I'm reeling from the shock of the diagnosis, let alone the shock of half of the nursing degree that I earned looking after him and the shock of the process and the needs and the equipment and the shock of the death, you, all of it, it's just yep. shocking. <laughs> and we're still shocked, aren't we? <laughs> we are, we're, <laughs> we are. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I have said to people that it's also a gift, you know, and I think it's one of the biggest gifts that you can give to your spouse or your partner is to nurse them through something and um, partner with them to their death because you are the one left behind to grieve. And so surviving your person is a gift to them because they don't have to go through what you're going through after they're gone. Right. It's kind of a strange way of looking at it, but I do feel very much like I would much rather have gone first than go through this, to be quite oh, honest. Yeah. And so it's a, a gift that I feel like I gave him in a sense. Well, it's something that some of the other spouses and I've talked about is that it truly actually, no matter how much you love each other, it changes the dynamics in your marriage. It, it really changes the husband and wife relationship. It's just not the same. And you're almost not husband and wife anymore, but you're, but at the same time, somehow, and I can see it now, I probably couldn't see it then, but somehow we were closer than we'd ever been. But yes. I mean, we had to be because of what we were going through together. And I'm lucky, and it sounds like you were too, that our husbands did not have the frontal temporal lobe dementia. Because I, I know some people who have gone through that, and that just sounds really horrible. I can't imagine uh, my husband having been mean or not remember and to do other things. So I think we do have blessings when we look back 
that it could have gone a completely different way, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's hard to see it when we're going through it, but when you can look back and I could not, probably a year ago, I couldn't have looked back. It's been five years for me. So I couldn't have looked back even a year ago and seen as clear as I see it now. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I've, yeah, I just, I feel like now at, I'm just past the two year mark that I'm able to think back and remember Dale as he was before ALS. And it's taken me two years to get to that place where I'm not just, my, my memories are not just crowded with the crisis and with the memories of all the, all things medical and all the emotional barrage that, that you go through. And I, I'm so thankful now that when I think about him, I'm remembering who he was before ALS, which is who he really was. Yeah. And I'm still struggling to get back to that. Um, but with that, we'll close out this episode. And in our next episode with Amanda, uh, for our listeners, she will talk about what she's done in the past two years uh, to carry on and maybe get some advice from her for others who might be going through this or just now going through uh, getting into the grieving process. So thank you for joining us today for Life After and join us in the next episode to hear a little bit more from Amanda up in Alberta, Canada.